Last week we talked about the fact that many Christians are willing to settle for second-rate Christian living. And I want to continue that vein today, but I want to talk today about living the first-rate Christian life. We handed out that sheet with numerous things that we can or really should or maybe even must do in our lives if we're going to have a part of living a first-rate Christian life. So I want to dig into that a little deeper this morning. But, but first of all, before we get into that discussion, um, did, anybody, did anyone happen to read through those lists at all that we handed out last week? Carrie, I know you didn't because your Bible is here all week long. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> but before we get into that discussion, I want to review briefly what we spoke about last week to set the stage for those that weren't here and the reminder for those that were. We talked last week about how competitive we are in the world that we live in. And we all have a natural desire to be the best we can be and to have the best. It's a natural part of our makeup that we, don't, that we want to be number one. We want to be the best. I don't believe that anyone sets a goal for themselves to be second best. We may find ourselves settling for that for numerous reasons on occasions, but for the most part, we have a natural drive to excel at what we do and what we have. And we also spoke about the vital importance of recognizing that we live in a multidimensional world made up of the physical and spiritual dimension. We see the physical, but we don't see the spiritual. We may dabble a bit in the spiritual, but for the most part, we live in the physical. It's what I see, it's what I feel, it's what I taste, it's what I smell, it's what I hear. It's the world that God made us to live in. He made us physical beings to live in a physical world. Physical things in themselves are not bad. When God made the world, he said it was good. When God made man, he said it was good. There is nothing inherently wrong with physical things. But yet, when we focus so much on the physical... When there is a spiritual world out there that is, I'm going to say, I don't know how I can say this, I don't know how I can quantitatively measure this, but I think and I feel that the spiritual world is more real than the physical world. It's more dimensional, it has more facets. We see in three dimensions, well four if you count time, but we, we're limited to three or four dimensions. And in the spiritual world, I don't think we even can comprehend the dimensions the spirit world has. We're limited because God gave us physical eyes to see physical things. But the spiritual world around us, around us is raging. It's, it's celebrating. There's activity constantly around us in the spiritual world. It was here before man was created. It was here before God invented or created the universe. It was here before he spoke it into being. God was here in spirit form. And it will be here, God will be here, and the spirit world will be here after the earth is destroyed. So the physical world is but a blip, really, of the spiritual dimensions. So with all of that said, why do we not give the spirit world more time in our thinking? 
Why, do not, why don't we think more about it and live more for it and not so much the physical? It's real. It's real. And here's the fact of the matter. Our body will perish, but our soul will continue to live on forever. And whether it's in heaven or in hell, our physical body will pass away, but our spiritual man will exist for all eternity. So we have to continue to think that way. We have to change our mindset. If all we're thinking about is tomorrow and the physical, when we know that that's going to pass away, then it's to your own benefit. Not to ignore it, but don't focus on it. But start putting your mind on things above. The spirit world. So let me ask the question that we talked a little bit about last week. If we realize that we are spiritual people, why do we live for the physical more than the spiritual? Last week we gave a couple different answers to that question. Number one, we, we said that we see the physical and we don't see the spiritual. We live for what we see more than what we don't see. And I think that's a pretty common element, that we live for what we see. It takes faith to live in the spirit world. And sometimes our faith isn't quite there. So we revert back to living by what we see. The second thing we talked about is that basically we are short-term more than long-term thinkers and planners. If we really understood the repercussions and the consequences of our actions for all eternity, we probably would make some different decisions today. If we really understood, and if we really could grasp the concept of I am going to be rewarded or punished based upon what I do today, it might make me think a little differently about what I'm going to do. But there's another reason that we didn't talk about that I believe is maybe even more of the root of the issue than these first two. And that is because our natural man, our carnal man, our natural man is at war with our spiritual man. And they are opposed to each other. The sin nature that we were born with is opposed to God's nature and it doesn't want to change. But let me tell you this morning, it must change. If we are going to have a relationship with God, the nature of our man, of our physical nature, that our, our, our mental image, it must change. Now, why do you say that, Mike? Because I look at the scriptures. And John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, it says this. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth like Jesus wasn't going to tell you the truth in the first place. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Again, Jesus is telling the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. 
clearly the devil doesn't want us to think this. He wants us to think that it really there's not that much difference between the spirit man and the physical man. The devil is, does not want us to understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus. That flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. See, the devil lives in half-truths and he lives in partial commitments. That's all he needs is a partial commitment and he wins. He doesn't have to have all of you. He just has to have a piece of you. And he wins. Where God is saying, no, you have to be born of the Spirit. You have to have the Spirit man controlling you in your life and not the physical man. That's why there's a battle going on. The devil's version is you can live in both worlds. You can have your Sunday morning God as long as I have the rest of your week. He'll give you, the devil will give you your Christian experience, all that we had this morning, all the praise and worship we had, all of that. The devil will give that up to us as long as he has you tomorrow. As long as he has your attitudes tomorrow. He doesn't care what happens today. That's what the devil lives. That's what he wants you to think. He wants you to think it's okay. Come be a good Christian man on Sunday and then live like you want to on Monday through Friday and then go back to church on Sunday and then do the thing on Monday. See, the devil's very happy with that because that is not a first-rate Christian life. That is a second-rate Christian life. And second-rate Christians will not be in heaven I'm telling that right now. Second rate. And I say that because God demands the first. He does not want your leftovers. He deserves more than your leftovers. Satan is very subtle. He's very cynical in his response to God's direction for our lives. He says, God doesn't really mean what he says. He can't really expect you to live for him all the time. Come on. You deserve a little of your own time. You don't have to live for God all the time. Who does he think he is? How can he demand that much out of you? No, you have your own time. Let's go live it up tonight. Let's go have our own time. Let's go have our own fun. You can have a little sin here and a little sin there. What? Does God expect you to be perfect? Here's the answer. No. God doesn't expect you to be perfect. You cannot be perfect. So when the devil comes to you with that kind of logic, don't argue with him. Agree with him. Yes. <laughs> I cannot live a perfect life, Satan. But here's the life that I live. I live a life perfect in my attitude. I live a life perfect in my repentance. Because when I see a problem come in my life, when that sin enters into my life, I am quick to have a David heart. I am quick to say, Jesus, forgive me. Father, forgive me. I fail. I fell. You're going to fall. And, and, and if, the, if the devil wants to bring that guilt on you to say, oh, you fell last night. You're not a worthy Christian. Say, you're right. 
But Jesus forgives me this morning, and I'm not going to go back and repeat that same sin because I've repented, meaning that I've turned away, and I'm not going to go back and repeat that same miserable sin. So, devil, you're right. But I'm right too, and Jesus is more right, and Jesus is more powerful than you, so I win and you lose. Sin and righteousness cannot coexist. No more than light and darkness can coexist in the same room. Sin and righteousness are diametrically opposed. They will never be together. They will never coexist in the same heart. You will either have a righteous heart or you will have a sinful heart. That doesn't mean a righteous heart is a perfect heart. And I've got to make sure you understand that point because I know some people beat themselves up over it and they say that I'm never going to live good enough. And you're right, you're not. But that's where you have to have Jesus constantly refreshing you and you need to live in a daily communion with him, daily praying, daily reading the word, daily coming in and, Father, forgive me and cleanse me and, and make my life more vibrant today than it was yesterday. And if you keep believing that and praying that way, eventually we will be, we'll become more like Christ and that's called sanctification. That's called being more like Christ, and we are called to be saved and sanctified. We're justified immediately at salvation, but sanctification is a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus all the time. And in that, yes, you're going to have problems, but greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. You will overcome those as, you, as long as you keep your focus on Jesus. Light and darkness will not coexist. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Let me read that verse again, but I want to, put a little, I want to paraphrase it just a little bit. Light, in parentheses, Jesus and his righteousness has come into the world. But men love darkness, in parentheses, sin, and our own unrighteousness instead of light because men's deeds are evil. Going on to verse 20. Everyone who does, who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Therefore, our natural man's tendencies of living in darkness keeps us away from the deeds done in the light that are of God. It's interesting that Jesus uses analogies here that help us with some of these complex principles. The analogy of light and dark, representing the life of a sinful man and the ways of God, are used numerous times in the Bible, probably because we can so easily understand that. If all the lights were turned off in this room and all the shades were drawn and it was really, really dark, as I turn lights on, what happens to the darkness? It has to leave. Light overcomes darkness all the time. Light overcomes darkness all the time. Jesus' righteousness overcomes sin all the time. God's righteousness overcomes my sinful nature all the time. So that, yes, as a sinful man down here, I have, my, I have my sin life. But yet, because of the righteousness that covers my life through the blood of Jesus, 
When God looks down from heaven and looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Because righteousness overcomes darkness. Righteousness overcomes sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And in parentheses, the word says, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. You see how the battle lines are being drawn? The battle lines are being drawn that we are not to be of darkness. We are to be of the light and we are to expose the darkness in our lives. And as we expose it, Jesus is there to forgive, not to condemn. As we expose the darkness within us, Jesus comes and he says, I forgive you of that. I forgive you. Now, live as a children of the light. Live as a child of light. And don't go back to that same old thing that you were doing before. Stay in the light. Don't go to the darkness. Stay in the light. And I will be sure that I will keep your life pure before me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. This is a very important passage of Scripture. Because I think what happens here is that this is where many believers create many of their own problems because we don't stay separated. And I don't say that in that we are to avoid sinful people because how can we be righteous in a sinful world if we're not in the world? But when we become of the world, when we tie ourselves to the world through how we're yoked, it becomes, it, it, we create lots of problems in our life and we become our own worst enemy many times because we don't listen to the word of God. So listen close. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Let me read that again. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Let me read that one more time in case somebody's not listening. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Why? For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So let me read verse 14 again. And maybe you understand now what this is saying and why this is saying it. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Any questions? <laughs> Any questions about that passage? It's pretty clear, isn't it? So young people, when you're looking for your mate, when you're out looking for those that you want to date or court, make sure 
They are believers. Make sure that they share the same faith that you share. Don't think that you're going to save them because you love them. Now, do you think that I'm saying this? Do you think that Jesus is saying this? Do you think that God is saying this? Do you think the Holy Spirit is saying this because he doesn't want you to have fun? Is that what it's about? Having fun? He's saying this because he sees the future. He's saying this because when people get unequally yoked, there's problems. There's problems. People can't agree on where they're going to raise their children. Are they going to be in this church or that church or even go to church? How can a house divided stand? It cannot. Why do you think we have divorce rates as high as we have them? Because people aren't living their lives according to God's word, beginning right here. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Let me ask again. Any questions? I'm telling you, I don't, this is so basic and so simple, I feel like I'm just repeating myself for no reason, but yet I feel it's important that we say this, because I don't sometimes think we get it. I think sometimes we think these rules or these commands or these instructions are for somebody else, because I can handle them, but somebody else can't, therefore God has to tell them what to do, but I can handle them on my own. I can do it. I can get away with it. I can work it out. That's coming from the devil. And yes, he will help you work it out, but it won't be for your good. So let me say it again one more time and we'll get off this topic. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light out of sin into his righteousness. We are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. Do you see the significance of that? Jesus is the prince of peace. He is the prince. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And he's calling us as a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Don't mingle with darkness. Don't play with it. Separate yourself from it. Now, there may be some here this morning that are asking, why do I have the right to say that a person naturally chooses darkness over God's light or sin over God's righteousness? Well, I say this not because God created this way, but because man chose this way many, many, many years ago in the Garden of Eden. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. God didn't create us sinful, but man's choice led, let sin in. Man's choice opened the door to darkness. And ever since that one faithful decision, all mankind has a natural bent toward the physical more than the spiritual. And therefore, if we are going to live a vibrant spiritual life, we must do so only as a conscious decision. We must take control of the flesh and bring it under our dominion of the spiritual and choose to make the spiritual in control of our physical lives. 
Left to the natural, man will live our lives in the flesh and we will die in the flesh. Only by the choice that we make to apply the blood of Christ, that blood that was sacrificed of Jesus on Calvary, can we prioritize the spiritual over the physical. Therefore, it's a daily choice that we must make to live in the spirit world over the physical world and lust live to please God. Because God is spirit and he must be worshipped in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verse 23 through 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now wait, is there a difference between a worshiper and a true worshiper? Yet a time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So therefore, if there are true worshipers, there must be false worshipers. Which one are you? Are you a false worshiper, or are you a true worshiper? Do you worship God in spirit and in truth? Do you know what that means? Well, I'm introducing what we're going to be talking about. Our natural flesh, our sinful desires, war against the godly spiritual desires in our life. And in order for us to live a first-rate Christian life, our spiritual man must be given the authority in our lives to take control of the naturally carnal man, the sinful man, and say no to ungodliness. So how do we do this? Let me ask you a question before we get started. I'm not going to get into time. This is going to be a serious thing, I can see. But let me, let me ask you a question. And I'm going to ask this question a couple different times next week and probably the weeks after. If you were bold enough <laughs> to write up a questionnaire of your life and hand it out to people that know you, and the result of that questionnaire would rate you as a first-rate Christian or a second-rate Christian, what do you think the results would come back to be? People that know you, give it to your wife, give it to your kids, and then give it to people that don't know you quite as well, and maybe you'll get a different response. <laughs> but give it to people that know you, and then say, evaluate me. Am I a first-rate Christian or am I a second-rate Christian? First of all, I'm not asking you to do that, but if I did, would you? And secondly, is it a good thing? Is it a biblical thing to do? Should we be concerned with what people think about us? How can you be light in the world if people perceive you as not being a Christian? If that, if that questionnaire came back and said, well, Mike, I see that you say things, I see you go to this church up on the hill. I see you go Sunday mornings and a couple times, maybe even Sunday nights when they have it and some wasn't. I see that. But, you know, I hear other things. I observe your language or I hear your language in business dealings. I see how you act in school. I see what you do in your spare time at night. I see where you go. I see who you hang with. Let me ask the question again. 
would they say, I'm a first-rate Christian or a second-rate Christian? So is it important? Yes. It's very important. Because how can I be the light of the world? How can I, be, how can I have Jesus shining through me if they see hypocrisy? If they see a dual-minded person? If they see a person that talks a big game on Sunday or when he wants to be a righteous man, but yet in the golf course I may not be so righteous. On the playing field I may have a player's language. Or I may exaggerate a little bit in the business world. I may not be quite so honest in that business dealing. Or my taxes. Wow. Or my pocketbook. Am I giving to God first in my life? Am I giving of my offering? Am I tithing? And see, all of these things, you, I know the devil is saying, saying, he's meddling now. He's meddling and he's getting in my personal life. But see, but this is the stuff come judgment day that we're going to be asked the questions of. I'm giving you a pre-examination opportunity to examine yourself before God examines you. And that is biblical. Because as we go into communion this morning, we are going to do just that. He says, examine yourself. If you have any wicked ways within you, and take care of it. If you haven't ought with your brother, go take care of that. If you have a problem with, with people, take care of that. We are supposed to judge ourselves and take care of ourselves and clean up our lives. But some would say, oh, that's, that's works, Mike. You're getting saved by works. No, I'm not. We're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. But I live my life as proof of a righteous life that I love Jesus and that I'm living for him. Yes, he saved me. I cannot do anything on my own to save myself. Jesus, the blood of Christ, through the appropriation of his blood in my life, is what saved me. Now I'm living my life accordingly because now I want to show others that I love Jesus. And I want to be a first-rate Christian. I do not want to settle for second best when it comes to this because I know that second best isn't going to be good enough come Judgment Day. It's not going to be good enough. You know, I'm reading a little book. I love this little book. This little book called Heaven is for Real. It's about a little boy that went to heaven. A little boy had an emergency appendectomy, and he didn't die. But he was given a revelation of heaven like John the Revelator was. And it's, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but this little boy knew things that this boy never would have known if he wouldn't have seen him with his own eyes. And he saw things in heaven that are biblically correct. And he didn't know that. He was four years old. But he came back and he's telling his dad what he saw. And his dad being a pastor, that's right. That tells me how exciting heaven is. That's why this morning when we were talking about heaven, that's why I got a little excited about it. Because we need to see that. We need to think long term. So as we get ready to have communion this morning, I would like to uh, invite the ushers to come down. And as we do, I would like to um, ask you all to examine your hearts and lives this morning. And imagine the questionnaire in your heart. What would people say of me? 
would they say that I'm a first-rate Christian? Or not? Now is the opportunity, now is the time to get your heart right with Jesus. And you can do that as these men serve you. Go ahead, guys. Thank you. You do not have to be a member of this church to receive communion. All you need to do is be a member of the family of God. You need to have your relationship with God that he says, yes, he's my son. And you have that relationship because you've accepted Jesus in your life. That simple. Communion is a time where we remember where we remember the suffering that Jesus suffered for us on the cross. It's a time that we have a relationship building opportunity with him again. It's a time that we can go to him for healing in our bodies, in our minds. So as you prepare to take communion this morning, if you have something that you need to take care of, take care of it. In fact, if your eyes are closed after you receive the communion elements, just make sure that your heart is right with God. Just spend the next couple minutes just saying, Father, if there's any wicked way within me, show it to me. And help me, Lord, to clean it up. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my unrighteousness. Forgive me for the darkness that I've allowed back in my life. Lord, bring this to my attention, not for condemnation purposes, but for purposes of restoration, for purposes of healing, for relationships that need to be mended, and most importantly, for my relationship with you, Jesus, that we're good, that we're good, that you look at me and that you're pleased with my righteousness. Your righteousness has been applied to my life. Not my deeds, not my actions, not my good nature. But with who you are in me, that you live within me. And most importantly, that others will see Jesus in me as well. My workers, my co-workers, my kids at school, my friends at school, they'll see Jesus. They'll see something different about me. And they'll ask, what is that about you, Mike? What is that about you? Put your name in that spot. What is there about you that makes you different? It's Jesus. You know, the thing I appreciate about reading about the Lord and reading about Jesus and reading his words is that Jesus really was a long-term thinker. He had a mission. He knew what his mission was in this life. He knew. But he never got sidetracked from his long-term plan. It is proof of this. We read the account of the Lord's Supper in Matthew, beginning in chapter 26, verse 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus gave everything he had, his body and his blood, it was everything that he had, he gave it. And this is where it proves to me that Jesus is a long-term thinker. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So this was his last supper. This was his last opportunity to uh, fellowship with his brethren, with his disciples. He knew what he was to face. He knew he had to cross the bear. But he saw the glory. He saw the joy. He saw the fulfillment of having his next meal with his disciples in heaven. And that's what, that's what communion's about. That's why we do this on a regular basis, that we can remember that we're to get our eyes off of the temporary. We're to get our eyes off to the problems of today. What's going to happen this afternoon? What's going to happen tomorrow morning on the job? And we recognize that someday, very soon, we'll be doing this in heaven. We'll be having a celebration dinner in heaven, and Jesus will be serving us. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that sound like fun? So now that we've had time to examine our hearts here this morning, let me ask you a question. Is there one person here that would want to publicly say, I need Jesus? Before we go to this point, is there one person here that says, I need to have Jesus in my life? Is there one? Amen. That's good. And now we can take these elements with a pure heart and a pure body and a pure mind because that's, that's what's required of communion. So as we pray over the elements this morning, we can do this with joy. Scott, or Riley, I'm sorry. Riley, would you pray over the bread, please, this morning? Amen. Let's partake together of the bread, please. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Lord, we thank you for that commitment that you made, that you gave us your all on that cross. There was no partial commitment from you that day. There was no partial commitment that I'll hang half on the cross and hang half off. It was fully on the cross that he died for us. He gave us everything he had. Amen. Jim, would you pray over the blood of the, the drink this morning, please? Amen. Let's partake together. Let's just take a minute. Let's just close your eyes. And let's do that little exercise we did before about worshiping God. Close your eyes. Forget about everybody around you for the moment. And just imagine the day that we pulled our chair up to the table. We just pulled our chair up to the table of the feast. And Jesus is preparing the bread. And he's preparing the wine. And he's starting his way around the table, handing it out to people. And he gives you your pieces, your drink. And he looks you in the eye. He says, here it is, Mike. You made it. Here it is. Let's partake together now. And let's now, let's take that minute and let's worship him. 
And let's just bask in that glory of what it's going to be that day. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Lord, we just lift our hearts and we lift our hands. And we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the blessed hope that we have, knowing that soon and very soon you're coming home. You're coming to take us home. Lord, whether we leave together or corporately or we, we leave individually, Father, it doesn't make any difference. We're still going home. And we thank you for that promise and that blessed hope. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing the song that Jackie's playing. Now let's celebrate one more time before we go home this morning the goodness of Jesus. time for the way you've ministered to us today. And Lord, we just celebrate this time with you. Lord, and we just don't want to rush it through, but Lord, we know we have activities for the day. So Lord, I just bless all those that were here this morning, and I pray a blessing on them. I pray that your, your spirit would go with them today and just minister to them all week long. And Lord, that we would not buy into the compromise of the world, that we would not buy into Satan's compromise that we can be Christians today but not tomorrow. Lord, help us to walk it through tomorrow. Help us to live it through tomorrow that, Lord, you'll be pleased and, Lord, next week when we come back, we'll be the better off for it. And then, Lord, that blessed day of judgment that you'll look down at us and say, well done, you did a good job. I'm so proud of you all of you. That's what we want to hear. Give us that day now we ask. 
go with us this, this day throughout the rest of the day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.